Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 17, The Inca Pantheon. Hello everyone and welcome back. This is A History of the Inca and I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. I hope you're all doing well and I hope your families are doing well. The weather is beginning to warm up, which is nice. I can at least step outside and grab a breath of fresh air. Of course, I'm not traveling very far these days, just in my yard, but it's nice to feel the sun from time to time. We do have a new patron this week, Cara D. Domizio. Cara is a new listener, but has been plowing through the episodes. Not only that, but she has promoted the podcast on Twitter and is a podcaster herself. She is the co-founder of Time Travel Talks, a podcast that, according to the Twitter bio, is a semi-monthly history chat focusing on generating discussion on historical topics. Time Travel Talks has not only been promoting this show, but many others on Twitter as well. So Kara, thank you very much for supporting this show and your fellow history podcasters. And I will tell you, everyone, many people, many creators are having to rely on their side gigs or hobbies, such as podcasting, to drum up a few extra dollars these days, given the economic circumstances. I myself have had to drop some hours so I can watch my son since our daycare has closed for the foreseeable future. So if you'd like to support this show, please go to patreon.com slash podcast. But it doesn't have to be this show. Whatever show you may be listening to, support them on Patreon or purchase something from their shop. Or donate a few dollars. Even if it is just a single dollar, trust me, it will brighten up their day. But no matter what, we appreciate you tuning in to our shows. Now then, let's get to it. Last time, we covered the Kori Kancha, the heart of the Inca religion and arguably the heart of the empire. But we focused primarily on the architecture and, of course, the gold that encased much of the temple complex. However, this time we are going to wade into the world of Inca religion. Before beginning, there are a few things I want to mention. Speaking about any particular religious system is fraught with challenges and difficulties especially trying to fit it all into a single episode. There are entire podcasts on Christianity or Islam, for example. Thus, there is no way for me to go through all the details of a religion that today is no longer in existence. The Inca religious system was a complex system that intertwined intimately with the state's administration system. Religious festivals, rituals, Gods, wakas, and priests played an important role in the everyday running of the empire's activities. This episode will focus on providing you with a broad overview of the Inca religious system. Details about rituals and the roles of individuals will not be covered today. Some details will be revealed in future episodes. However, I do hesitate to dive too deep into the numerous rituals that the Inca performed. I may lose several of you in doing so. It is something that I will continue to think about 
delivering to all of you, and if I do, how best to do so. An entire episode dedicated to a single ritual might be too much detail for some. Meanwhile, others may really want something like that. But let me know what you think via email, Twitter, or the Facebook page. Once again, this episode will be a broad overview of the basic Inca beliefs and customs, but it should provide you all with some understanding of this complex but highly fascinating religious system. Enjoy. We'll begin with the principal gods within the Inca religion, many of which we've covered before. However, today we'll cover them in a bit more detail. At the top, we have Viracocha. We first met Viracocha in Episode 7, Origin Myths, Part 1. He created the sun, Inti, the moon, Mamakia, as well as all of the people of the world. Again, from Episode 7, Viracocha sent people forth through the ground to emerge from various trees, streams, caves, and such, called Pacarinas. Viracocha was always seen as key in the Inca religion, but was elevated as the principal god of the Incas when Hatun Tupac Inca, the eighth ruler, adopted the name Viracocha Inca himself. He built a large temple complex to Viracocha at the present-day town of Rakchi, where Viracocha had revealed himself to the Kana people on his journey through the Andes. And there was also the Kizwakancha in Cuzco, which was dedicated to Viracocha just a few blocks away from the Huacapata. Some sources claim that it was actually Viracocha who appeared to Pachacuti on the eve of the battle with the Chanca. However, if this was the case, we would have expected to see Viracocha in a much more prominent role in the Inca religion, which is certainly not the case. Indeed, with the rise of Pachacuti as Sapa Inca, Viracocha seems to have taken a back seat. As he had been credited with reforming the Inca religion and establishing many of the practices, Pachacuti didn't dedicate any chararas or fields to Viracocha. You see, fields were dedicated to certain gods or wakas in order to provide items for sacrifice. Being the creator god and thus universal, Viracocha was seen as not needing anything. Of course, this meant that little to no wealth or goods were directed towards Viracocha, making the worship of him not nearly as prominent. Though I have read accounts to say that sacrifices were made to him. Dismissing Viracocha and elevating Inti may very well have been a power play by Pachacuti elevating the god of his choice, while at the same time undercutting his father's. And let's talk about Apu Inti, aka Lord Sun. As I stated earlier, Inti was elevated to the primary god of the Inca when Pachacuti came to power. No doubt his vision of Inti, right before the battle against the Chanka, was a driving factor in this. But the elevation of Inti was also a way for the Inca to legitimize their rule over other groups. Next to Viracocha, Inti was the most popular god 
in the central Andes, as it was recognized that he gave life to crops. So it was fairly easy for Inti to be installed in many regions. Since it was easy for most people to accept the elevation of Inti, the Inca claiming to be children of the sun gave them legitimacy. Not only this, but it also allowed the Inca the ability to claim that they themselves were gods. Inti had a large amount of chararas dedicated to him and several punchayu, or statues. All of these had people who attended to these idols and would perform sacrifices for them, which we'll get to later in this episode. Before moving on, I want to mention a belief that the Inca had about solar eclipses. They were able to predict the path of the sun, as states before them had, and so whenever there was a solar eclipse, it was seen as a terrible omen. It was a thought that it predicted the death of an Incan prince, and the sun was in mourning as he saw that the prince had nothing to look forward to in their life except death. Despite this sad prediction, the Inca would fast and make even more sacrifices than normal in hopes of ending the eclipse. And since behind every great man there is a great woman, let's turn to the moon, or Mama Kia. Though I guess during a solar eclipse she would technically be in front. Anyways, the Sapa Inca and his Koya could be seen as the sun and moon in Inca society. That is what they essentially represented. Unfortunately, women in Inca Unfortunately, women in Inca society weren't treated the same as men, even though they did play key roles in the administration from time to time, such as the mother of the potential heir. However, this lack of equality seems to have carried over to the moon. She just wasn't on the same level as Inti, despite being his wife. The moon did have her own temple in the Coricancha, as we discussed last episode. Clad in silver, which was believed to be her tears, the moon had a female figure representing her within the temple. Lunar eclipses were also a concern for the Inca. They believed that a serpent or puma was attacking the moon and would chant, yell, and beat drums to try to scare the beast away. For they feared that if the moon were to die then they'd be left in complete darkness. We'll leave the moon there and move on to the god that is my personal favorite, Iyapa, the god of thunder and lightning. Iyapa is considered under Inti in terms of rank, but had his own temple and statues held within the Coricancha. But the description of Iyapa is one of the reasons why he is my favorite. He has by far the best depiction. From Father Bernabe Kobo's Inca Religion and Customs. They imagined that he was a man who lived in the sky, and that he was made up of the stars, with a club in his left hand and a sling in his right hand. He dressed in shining garments, which gave off flashes of lightning when he whirled his sling, and the crack of his sling made the thunder and he cracked his sling when he wanted it to rain. So basically a yapa is the equivalent of Thor from Norse mythology, without the flowing blonde locks. 
but who dresses flashier and wields dual weapons. But this isn't all that is said about Iapa. He also passed across a large river in the sky where he would draw the water from which he would let fall to the earth. This river was described to Kobo as being the white band that flowed across the night sky. Today, we know that band to be just a small part of the rest of our galaxy, the Milky Way. I mean, come on. That's awesome, right? Iapa is made of stars, wears flashy clothes, and draws water from the galaxy itself. Not only that, he wields a sling that creates lightning and releases rain, as well as a club just for kicks. By far the coolest of the gods in the Inca pantheon, in my opinion. Now for a couple of not necessarily lesser gods. These gods were widely venerated, but in the Inca religion, they were not as important as the ones we've just covered. First we have Mamacocha, the sea or mother of lakes. She was worshipped mainly on the coast. Pachamama, who was the earth mother in the Andes. In the Chararas or fields, there would be altars where farmers would make offerings to Pachamama in the hopes of a bountiful harvest. During my time in Peru, offerings of libations were still made to Pachamama. Near the end of a beer or a drink, the last little bit would be poured onto the bare ground as an offering to her. Different stars and constellations were worshipped throughout the Andes. The previously mentioned Pleiades were given special attention to in the highlands, as they were often credited for predicting the rains. We're going to step away from the gods and now discuss huacas. We've talked about huacas before on this podcast, but they are so important that I really want to cover them again, and in case there's any new listeners out there. Huacas could be anything that could be considered unnatural or unusual. Mountains, rivers, trees, animals, and even an oddly shaped potato could be considered a huaca. And what is key to remember is that huacas were considered alive in a certain way. They required libations and sacrifices in order to survive and to be able to serve those who lived. Of course, as I've mentioned several times before, dead ancestors were often considered huacas and some were even mummified. Mummified remains of individuals go back well before the Inca and even before the Nazca. Given the dry conditions of the Andes, it should be no surprise that the ability to mummify remains was quite easy. From Kobo, the bodies were wrapped in a large amount of cotton with the face covered. The bodies were not brought out except for major festivals. No ordinary people saw the bodies except for those responsible for dressing them, watching over them, and caring for their preservation. Just like the rest of the Andes, the mummies of a dead Sapa Inca and his Koya were cared for by the Ayu. The Ayu would sustain itself on the lands and estates that the Sapa Inca had created while he was alive. Depending upon the lands and holdings the Sapa Inca had procured, the Ayu could be quite well off. As we'll see down the road, this all had some interesting consequences for the empire. 
But these mummified emperors weren't just there for the AU to use and to get fat off the land. Though that definitely happened, the mummies also played an active role in the administration. Yeah, you heard that right. The dead played an active role in the empire. How did that work? We are told in several accounts that the dead Sapa Incas and their queens were always dressed as if they were still alive, wearing their usual garments and jewelry. Mummies of the former rulers would be brought out from their respective estates and into the Huacapata for certain ceremonies, where they would be seated according to rank, the most recent ruler being the most important, receiving libations and sacrifices and bearing witness to festivities. At times, the dead would be brought to Cusco to talk to the Sapa Inca, and other times, the son of the sun would go to visit them himself. The mummies were even taken to each other's residences to talk to each other. And I'm not making this up. One of the last Sapa Inca, Huascar, was so upset with many of the Inca mummies and their AUs for becoming so powerful that he threatened to, well, reform the system. And he did have a good point. Not only could the Panaca or Royal AU become powerful, but so could those who worked to interpret what the mummies said. Those individuals essentially controlled the entire Panaca by being the voice of the mummy and thus controlled the very messages sent to the Sapa Inca. The whole concept is really quite fascinating when one thinks about the interaction of the mummies and thus the Panacas had with whichever administration was in power. The dead being so deeply involved in the politics of the day is something I don't believe has been done anywhere else in human history. If anyone has any similar examples to share, please let me know. The last thing we're going to talk about today are sacrifices. Sacrifices have taken various forms throughout the history of humans. In the Andes, public and private sacrifices were common to all the gods and wakas that I've already mentioned. Generally speaking, sacrifices could be broken into three categories. The first was food, drink, and inanimate objects such as figurines and clothing. These were the most common of sacrifices. Chicha could be poured onto the ground and food would be burned. Again, from Kobo, those who were in charge of the dead bodies of the lords did not let a single day pass without giving them the same kind of food that they used to eat when they were alive. This food was burned and drink was poured out onto the ground. They believed that from the place where the soul was located, it would receive the thing offered and eat it. An entire labor force was dedicated solely to making chicha and weaving cloth for Inti, the Mamakona. Clothing would be made for burning for other gods or huacas. Figurines could be made of wood, shells, or precious metals. These items may be placed at the site of a huaca and be left there, or they may even be buried at the feet of a huaca. The step up from this would be the sacrifice of animals. The animal sacrifice would either be a llama or guanaco and the humble guinea pig. Yes, my friends, 
You may not have known this, but the guinea pig, like the potato, actually originated from the Andes. And yes, those squeaky little rodents were sacrificed to the gods and huacas alike. However, guinea pig aren't recorded in accounts as often as the sacrifice of the llama. The Inca actually kept vast herds of llama for various purposes, including meat and hauling of goods, but also for sacrifice. And they would get really particular about their llamas. Brown ones would be sacrificed to Viracocha, white llama were reserved for Inti. In fact, a white llama was sacrificed to Inti every single day in the Coricancha. And depending upon the ceremony, the entrails of the llama would also be read to predict certain events. Such sacrifices were done during key festivals of Inti Rami, known as the Celebration of the Sun. Finally, we have the third level, human sacrifice. One might not think of the Andes when asked about human sacrifice. I imagine that many of you would immediately think of the Aztecs. And though the Aztecs were a bit more theatrical with it, and thus a little bit more well-known for the practice, we don't fully know the extent of human sacrifice in the Andes. However, we did first touch on this subject all the way back in episode 3, the Moche, in which ceremonial battles took place with the losers being ceremoniously sacrificed and their blood possibly consumed. Once again, things weren't as messy when it came to the Inca, though they were no more ethical, because instead of warriors being sacrificed, it was often children brought from the provinces. Now, any human sacrifice only took place during certain ceremonies and was less commonplace than the sacrifice of any animal. However, Father Burnaby Cobo, who I've quoted several times in this episode, claimed that these children had their hearts cut out during the particular ceremonies. Though such sacrifices did happen in a certain case on the coast, it was a different group of people that did that and under dire circumstances. At this moment, there isn't the archaeological evidence present to support Kobo's claim of the Inca cutting the hearts out of children. Instead, more often than not, the victims would be given copious amounts of food and chicha, getting them very drunk and very sleepy. Depending upon the location, the victim might be killed in different ways. If we're talking about Cusco, the victim or victims would be strangled. But sometimes these sacrifices would take place in the provinces and in the mountains. In this case, the victim would once again be given large amount of food, and a large amount of chicha. They would be led to a specific spot, perhaps near the summit, and at this point the victim would be struck with a club, leaving them unconscious. And there they would be left on the mountain to succumb to the elements. That is where we will end for today. As I said at the beginning of the episode, this was just a broad view of the Inca religion and belief system. I only mentioned one official ceremony, Inti Rami, the celebration of the sun, in passing. Details of such ceremonies do exist, but I'm unsure if recounting an entire ceremony is appealing to many of you. 
If you are interested in me going further into the rituals of the Inca, please let me know. Otherwise, I encourage you to check out Cristobal Molina's account of the fables and rites of the Incas. Molina's account is an excellent source describing several ceremonies in great detail. And much of what Father Bernabe Cobo wrote was taken down from Molina's work. Again, that's all for today, everyone. Be safe, and I will see you all next time.